Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, what's up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is Good Morning Liberty Live from the Students for Liberty, LibertyCon in Miami. My name is Nate. Charlie is down here at the end of the table. And in between us, we've got Professor Anthony Davies. You've probably heard us talk about him quite a bit because of his podcast, Words and Numbers, which he's a co-host of. And he's also the Associate Professor of Economics at Duquesne University. Professor Davies, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's nice to see you guys again. Yeah, it's good to see you. Particularly in person. That's right. It's always better to be in person, for sure. So how did the speech go? We were talking about that a little bit. You just you just. Oh, gave my a God. <laughs> so I thought initially that this was going to be, I was going to have a 45-minute time slot. So I find out a couple of weeks ago, no, it's not 45 minutes, it's 20. So I desperately knock my... 45 minute talk down into 20 minutes. I think I've got a good, I get here and they say, oh yeah, we're going to need the first five minutes to introduce you. But <laughs> oh, now it's a 15 minute talk, right? <laughs> okay, fine. I can make that work. So I get up there, I'm doing the thing and something doesn't feel right. Now I'm t- in front of a room of, I don't know what was there, 400, 500 people. Something doesn't feel right. And I realize, oh my God, They've got an old version of my slides. <laughs> They've got the 45-minute version. <laughs> knock this down to 15 on the fly, right? Yeah. Okay, so what were you? we didn't get to hear it. What were you talking about? The, the gist was, the, the theme is the two realities, that we, the world we live in is not the world that we think we live in. And, and what drives all of this? in my estimation, is the fact that the media, and I'm not placing blame, I'm blame. I'm simply saying the way it is, the media is a profit-oriented entity, like other profit-oriented entities, it's looking to give its customers what they want. And what do we want? If you look at our behavior, don't look at what people say, because if you ask people, they'll say, well, the problem here is all this negative news that we see, why can't we see good news? Don't look at what they say, look at what they do. And what they do is they gravitate toward the bad news, that's what they look for. And so long as people, viewers, have demonstrated that that's what they want. That's what the media will give us. They give us bad news. Now, I'm not saying the media lies. That's that's not my point here. In fact, I'd go the opposite direction and say, no, the media tells us the truth. The problem is they only tell us half the truth. Mm-hmm. That's the bad news. And so we come away thinking, oh my God, the world's going to hell and this is going to be the last generation. Everybody's going to be dead in 20 years. Yeah, if you only look at the bad news, I can understand why you come to that conclusion. Yeah. I, I think it's why we like we crave like figures like Trump, right? <laughs> yeah, or somebody who's yeah. like that, that brash uh, chaos. It's almost like we gravitate towards chaos. Would you say that that may be a, a biological instinct, perhaps that humans as problem solvers, we need problems to solve, and maybe the world is so great we don't really have that many problems, although we do, 
Um, yeah. So, so we want we crave that chaos so that we can we have something to talk about and something to solve. I have no idea why this is the case. I could do some armchair theory that this actually evolved because as humans, you know, first start to communicate. If you can communicate bad news, that tends to be more useful than communicating good news because it's the bad news that's more pressing. And I spoke to my, was talking to my wife about this the other day, who's one of the most intelligent people I know. And she said, stop and think. This has been going on for hundreds of years. You go back to the 1800s, early 1800s, and Thomas Malthus, the philosopher, was looking at data on growth of the world population. At, this t- at the time, world population was growing as it is today exponentially and yet 80 percent of the world 90 percent of the world lived in poverty and he looked at that and said this can't continue in another Mm -hmm. 10 15 years half the planet is going to be dead Mm -hmm. and and so this is something that that we've been kind of doing for i guess as long as we've been around we communicate the bad news and we tend to downplay or don't even talk about the good news i wonder if we evolved that way like you were talking because those are the things to protect ourselves yeah and what we need to know about you want to pay attention to what could harm you i right. guess so you want to make sure that you're aware of things around you that could harm you and so those are the things that you pay attention to i was just thinking about this problem yesterday uh when it comes to you said they're profit seeking organization right uh, is that a problem? Some people would say that that's a problem. I don't think it is, but how do you solve this yeah. problem? No, I don't think it's a problem. In fact, if we point to the media, we're pointing to a symptom, not the disease. The disease is us. We want to hear bad news. The media is simply a market entity that, like other market entities, give us what we want. And you could say, well, let's get rid of the profit incentive. Let's have the government in here and, and regulate the sort of news that's going on. And I tell you, we're still going to get bad news. Why? Because that's what people want. And we'll end up electing politicians who are going to say things like, you know what? Things are really getting bad and you don't know it because it's been silenced, the bad news. Elect me and I'll make sure it gets out there. I'll change the regulations so that the news people have to report the bad news. And everybody's going to cheer and they're going to elect me. So you're going to get the same outcome either way. The problem isn't in the markets. The problem is in ourselves. And they would have the incentive to report on the bad news if the government were running the news because they need a problem to sell oh, you on solving, right? Yeah, politicians are machines that turn bad news into votes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charlie, I, you, I'm, I'm curious, like, when you look at history, because I'm, I'm trying to think about this in real time, I feel like most of the events I look back on in history, they're all bad news. Like, <laughs> right, you're right, yeah. Like the, <laughs> like the most infamous days, like D-Day, uh, Jan six, <laughs> you know, yeah, like it's the worst days. Those are the like, two that you thought of immediately. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> let, let me go further. I thought D Day was kind of a good day, though. Like, kind of. Well, you, know? yeah, you would think it's I so. Mean, yeah, but let, let me give you another example along those lines that you study. Everybody studies in high school the Industrial Revolution and standardization of parts and all this thing, which is all fabulous. I cannot tell you how fabulous that news is. Miracles. That's the news. Mm-hmm. That's Miracles. the news that yes. staved off the, the impending doom that Thomas Malthus foresaw. That news, when it's taught, is not taught as fabulous news. Rather, it's taught as this is the birth of the robber barons mm-hmm. and people, you know, young children working in factories and dying because we didn't have the proper regulations. That, the best news in human history was being, is portrayed as bad news itself. Yes. Yeah. And what about, uh, you know, when were the ge- genetically modified crops invented, like corn and all that? Now, right now, we look at that as really bad. A lot of people listening, they would be right. like, oh, that's terrible. But actually, uh, I come from a farm family, 
and I know how much that increases the yields. And when you're talking about yeah. our population problem, uh, uh, there's a trade-off there. Maybe it shaved off a few years off of people people's lives if it's not good for your health or whatever. But also billions more people are alive because of those things. Yeah. So that's important as well. I can't name the date that that was created. Right, but <laughs> but I can, I can point to the endpoints. So we have the early 1800s where Thomas Malthus is writing. At that point, 90% of the world lived in abject poverty. Today, there are 10 times the number of people on the planet as there were in Thomas Malthus' day, and yet our world poverty rate is less than 10%. It's about 8%. Yeah, but there's more people in poverty now than there were at that time. Now, that's interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, but here's the interesting thing, because people have said that to me before. Well, there's more people in poverty. Well, of course there are more people in poverty, because there's 10 times the number of people. <laughs> Except there's an interesting comeback to that. And that is, since 2010, not only has the fraction of poor people been declining, but the absolute number of poor people has been declining. Okay. That's good news. Yeah, well, not only that, I think for most people, especially in America, we view poverty so differently. The standard of poverty has changed exponentially. Oh my God! As yeah. well, so like the 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 line has been moved way up. Um, it's something I that I talk about a lot because people who think because uh, I, I think when you talk to people, a lot about it's based on like um, what they've seen in their life. You know, there's not. Most people aren't diving into statistics and data, right? It's like, well, you know, I have helped poor people in America and they're really poor or I've been poor myself. And the standard of of that poor has changed dramatically where most people, especially in America, have access to things you couldn't even imagine back in the 1800s. Oh, yeah. By, by any measure. Uh, people today, and let's talk about extreme case, someone who's working a 7.25 an hour job full time, that person earns about $15,000. And that's before that person would receive all sorts of government aid. Before that government aid, the person's at $15,000. If you compare that to the world income and adjust for differences in cost of living, so yeah, it's cheaper to live elsewhere and is in the United States. So let's make that adjustment. The average world income is $10,000. So quite literally, what we call poverty, the rest of the world calls middle class. That's how rich we become. Yes. I've actually been begged for water before when I was in, when I was in Djibouti, Africa. Yep. And that changes your outlook on, yeah, on everything. Sure. You know, that's, that makes you realize just how good we have it here. Now, you mentioned uh, 15000 and that's before you take into account all the... Uh, welfare programs, things like that. We just talked a lot about, was it Cato who did that study recently? Yes. Talking about how the actual poverty rate that we have is not taking into account all of the uh, welfare programs and all that. Which way do yeah. you think we should look at it? Should it be without those programs or, or with them? Oh, I think you should do it both ways. And okay. we do this not just with poverty. We do it um, disturbingly with figures on income inequality. Mm. So when you hear statements about income inequality is getting worse in this country, those numbers are based on pre-tax, pre-transfer numbers. In other words, we completely ignore everything we do to mitigate inequality. Well, no wonder it looks like inequality is getting worse. <laughs> You're ignoring all the stuff we're doing, right? So, but I think you should look at both because on the one hand, I want to know as an economist, what's going on absent government? Kind of like, what's the baseline? But then I also want to know, okay, now we've got these policies that are meant to help the poor. Now show me what they look like after. Give me both the before and the after. And we don't do that. We just give the one side. Well, whoever wants to make their point uses one side or the other. 
Well, actually, that helps. It, it, we just did a whole episode on this a couple weeks ago, I think, and it's, it is really crazy to think about. We have this entire redistribution scheme in place because of our inequality and people in poverty. And then when we look at the numbers at the end of the day, we don't take into account the redistribution that we did. And we say, hey, look, there's still inequality. We need to, make, we need to do more redistribution. But then we never take into account the, the redistribution yeah, that we do. We don't, we don't take into account the redistribution. We also tend not to take into account the source of the inequality. So when, when we talk about inequality, so many people hear in the back of their minds, theft. Well, this guy's poor and the other guy's rich because the rich guy took something from the poor guy. And the fact is, you'll always have inequality because the root of inequality is not theft. Now, it could be theft, right? But it's even if you did away with all theft, that's not the root of the inequality. The root of inequality is we're all different. We have different skills. We have different opportunities. Some of us are luckier than others. For all of these reasons, some of us naturally are going to rise higher than others. You're going to get the inequality. Right. And, and what you're saying there is like, what do you measure it on? Like your looks? Right, yeah. Looks are yeah. definitely unequal. Height, weight, yeah. intelligence. Like um, this is something I think Jordan Peterson does a good job of explaining the Pareto distribution. Yes. Yeah. So like, you know, some planets have all the mass. Some stars have all the mass, right? It's right. like there's always going to be that inequality problem. Um, so this kind of leads me into we've talked to you about corporate greed before. Mm-hmm. But with the pandemic and the inflation and everything going on there, it's become even more of a talking point uh, for a lot of folks. So this whole inequality where the CEO makes a billion times what the average (laughs) worker makes, right? And then uh, these companies that are being greedy during this time of inflation when Americans are hurting, kind of give us a little bit of like your take on that and if, what, if you want to start with inflation or start with corporate greed, yeah. I think we could and have a big discussion. Pretend like about you're addressing Robert Reich. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, let's start with the greed business. And one of the interesting things you'll see, if you go back and look at headlines going back to the start of inflation, you'll see this. Politicians scrambling to blame whatever. They were blaming the war in, in Ukraine. They were blaming blaming corporate greed, they're blaming all sorts of things. And what they're doing is looking to distract us, put our attention anywhere other than the real cause of inflation. Inflation, average prices can be influenced by all manner of things in the short run. In the long run, inflation is due to one thing and one thing only. And that is that your money supply grew faster than your production of goods and services. Our money supply has been growing faster in production of goods and services. And we said this, James Harrigan, my co-host and I, said this going all the way back to April of 2020 when the government was cutting all these checks in the age of COVID. And we must have spent like, I think the government that year spent like twice what it would normally spend. And we said, we've got to pay for that. People think this is free money, but you're going to pay for it. You're either going to pay for it in higher taxes down the road or you're going to pay for it in lesser government services as the government has to cut back elsewhere, or most likely, we said, you're going to pay for it in inflation. Because what's happening is the Federal Reserve is not entirely, but largely printing money to help finance this deficit spending. And lo and behold, we get inflation now. That's the problem. Now, politicians don't want you looking at that because that all of that story points like an arrow at exactly the problem, which is that Congress can't stop spending. Yeah, they, they're really good at pointing to the corporate greed narrative. We talk about Robert Reich all the time, and that's always what they're pointing to. And I, we, it, it gets us so upset because, 
you have people literally out there lying to people, telling them that this is just because corporations raise their prices. That's the only reason that we have inflation. But as, as you know, and we talk about a lot, they've always wanted to charge the most that they could. Right. Uh, they always, it's always about their pricing power. What can they charge for things? And what changed is what can they charge for things? Right. And the pricing power changed. The amount of money in the system changed. And that's the only thing. They've always, of course, always been greedy. They always want to get the most that they can. So you got to look at what actually changed here. It's the money supply. Yep. And it, they just don't, they don't want to point to it because then that would bring in the question all of, well, and really, it's a, I think it's a projection, right? The, the government is projecting corporate greed when it's really they're the ones who are greedy. It's really political greed. Right. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And they're projecting like, oh, don't, it's not me. Don't look at me. Right. In true narcissist fashion. Hey, tax receipts are at all time highs, too. You know, so they're, <laughs> they're, they're being just as greedy. Yeah. yeah. See, and, that, and that's a weird thing because the argument people will give is, okay, well, if we're not going to print money to finance all this stuff, we should raise taxes and we could talk about the rich not paying their fair share and all that kind of thing. Yeah, but here's the thing. What people have in the back of their heads is we can raise taxes so that our deficit will be less. And what happens is politicians realize that Americans are comfortable with a certain level of deficit. And if we raise taxes, they're not going to pay down that deficit. They're going to turn around and spend it because we've demonstrated we're comfortable with it. And so today, you can look at the Congressional Budget Office. They in, they are forecasting for the next decade over a trillion dollar deficit each year for the next 10 years. And I can tell you, because I've seen there, if I've compared Congressional Budget Office's forecast to what's actually happened in the past, and typically they're way off and mm -hmm. way off in the rosy scenario side. So if they're saying trillion dollar deficits every year for the next 10 years, I wouldn't all be surprised if it goes up to two trillion, three trillion. Yeah. Uh, how long can that happen, you think? Well, uh, yeah, that's my question. What's the end game? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. It goes on until people, voters become annoyed enough. We're starting to get annoyed with inflation. Now, the question is, what's going to happen with inflation? If it stays around 8% like it is now, that's not happy news. But if people see their paychecks going up by 8% as well, they'll kind of calm down a bit. However, if we see 8% this year and next year our paychecks go up by 8% at the same time that inflation jumps to 10 or 12%, and the year after that our wages go up by 10 or 12% when inflation jumps to 15 or 17%, then people are going to start to get annoyed. They're going to start asking the serious questions they should have been asking all along. What's the actual cause of this problem? Unfortunately, there will, there will always be someone there to blame it on corporate greed. There, there will be, <laughs> but, but that explanation starts to ring hollow. I mean, it's, it's something you can go to when the problem first arises. Oh, yes, it must be the corporate greed. But it starts to ring hollow when over time we see these supposedly greedy companies, they're going bankrupt and they've, they've closed or be, because they, they can't earn enough money to stay afloat. Or we keep hearing this over and over again and what we hear doesn't match with our experience working in the various companies that we work in. And at that point, we start to dig a little bit deeper and realize that we've been sold a bill of goods here. Do you think, do you think that this, like we might solve this civilly or is this something that's going to end in... Uh, I don't want to say catastrophe, but like, is it going to have to be like the, a phoenix? Is it going to have to die yeah. and be reborn? Um, well, I, I, have a, I have a bias here, and my bias is, is my hope that it ends peacefully. And, and I, can see, I can see a path to that. And in a lot of ways, this path and what leads up to it in, 
is its own bit of good news. And that is, we reach a point, and my guess is we might well reach it in the next 10 years, triggered by Social Security becoming insolvent, that the federal government throws up its hands and says, look, we can't do this anymore. Uh, we've taxed as much as we can. The people aren't taking anymore. They aren't buying the argument that the rich aren't paying their fair share. Um, we can't get by on the corporate greed argument anymore because clearly corporations have shut down because they're losing their money because of, of everything that's going on. And they realize, okay, the voters have, dis- have finally figured it out. The problem is us. So what do we do? Well, we start to devolve things. And we say, look, we, the federal government, we can't afford Social Security. It's very clear. Um, but by good luck, we have 50 other governments here, the states. You 50 states, you guys figure it out. So Pennsylvania will have some form of Social Security, or maybe not. It'll have something else. Florida, something else. Mississippi, something else. And, and what happens there is we return, kind of because we're forced to through fiscal constraints, we return to the version of federalism that the founders had in mind the whole time. What they had in mind was a federal government that was small, that did a number of eight or nine things that are listed in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Everything else is done at the state level. Let the state, and one of the great things that happens there, I'm not saying that states are going to be any better at this than the federal government is. Maybe not. In fact, in a lot of ways, I could imagine they're worse. But here's where the benefit comes in. We get 50 experiments. And the states that do it better will become examples to those that do it worse. And they'll have an incentive because people will move. Businesses will move. And they say, I can't take it here anymore. I'm going over to this state where things are better off. And now there's there's a market, the same the same competitive forces that make competitive companies so good for consumers will make competitive states so good for voters. There's also a constraint there that states can't print their own money as well. Yes, and so that's that a very nice constraint. Isn't yes. It? yes, yes, yes. <laughs> now that's a very uh, hopeful message, Anthony. I was, I was, you know, I was hoping for something. Charlie's more. all gloom and doom over here. <laughs> we're hoping so. for more, something more dire because we're looking to sell <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, we want to sell this episode. But, <laughs> yeah, you what? have to have my my co- my co-host on, James Harrigan. James He'll tell you all sorts of horrible things. We have things. to talk to James sometime. By the I way, I also, I also, <laughs> I'm very much an optimistic person, but doing this every day. You know, when you're looking at things, I just have days where I come in. I'm just like, you know, everything needs to burn to the ground so we can start over. <laughs> yeah, I hear, I hear you. I hear you. I get so pessimistic. I got a random question. I'm going to put you on the spot real quick. Let's pretend that you're the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Okay. And your, your action at the next meeting, which is on November 2nd, I believe, what would you come out and announce other than the fact that you were going to dissolve the Federal Reserve? Uh, what would you do to solve this problem from that position? The first thing is I'd put us back on a gold standard. And I, I would say simply, look, look, I'll say as an economist, there's nothing magical about gold. But one of the great things it does is it takes out of the Fed's hands the ability to print money. And if, it take, if you take that ability out of the hands of the Fed, the federal government now has a problem. If it wants to spend more than it brings in, and it's not going to raise taxes, and it's not going to cut spending elsewhere... It's going to have to go to markets and borrow it. And there, you're going to see interest rates rise. And people are going to say, why is it cost me 20% for a mortgage? Well, it's because of the politicians. They keep borrowing all this money. Right now, we can hide that high interest rates by printing more and more money. It comes out in the form of inflation. But I think that's the first. that would be the first biggest step. Put us back on a serious gold standard. 
It's crazy that you still end up getting the interest rate. You do the zero, you just said it comes out in the form of inflation. Right. And I've never thought about that before. There's no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> yes. You, there's that? no way around it. <laughs> right, no matter right, how mar- right. No matter how hard you try. So this kind of leads me into the modern monetary theory because, you know, I see them all the time on TikTok and things. And, and you know, part of me is like, okay, I'm trying to understand where they're coming from because I do think what they have in theory, like the the baseline theory is we can create money if we want to, as long as we invest it in the places that's going to produce a return. So much like a corporation takes on debt, but what they're going to produce is going to not only pay off their debt, but produce a profit that creates wealth, right? So I understand that in principle, but like, where, do the, where does it always go wrong? Because we were having debates back in 2020 when all this money printing was happening saying, this is going to cause inflation to rise. And all the modern monetary theorists were like, no, that's you just, they've been saying that for years. They'll and just that's tax not it back out of the works. economy. Right. We'll tax it out. Where it goes wrong is everything you said after the word if. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. So we, we print more money, but if it's invested correctly, it comes back as blah, blah, blah. Look, it's not going to be invested correctly. And I tell you why. Two reasons. One, the people doing the investing, that is going to be largely politicians and bureaucrats, don't have the skill set to understand where the money should be best invested. Nor do they have the incentive. And that's the second thing. They don't have the incentive either. If they get it wrong, what happens? Worst case scenario, they're voted out of office. It's not their money on the table. I would be much more comfortable with the investment decision being made by the person who stands to lose his shirt if it goes wrong. Amen. We, we always we always point out the biggest the biggest flaw because like Charlie says I can follow them down the line of logic if they truly think that the government's band of virtuous angels would invest the money in the right spot that that would be okay but then they say how do you stop inflation you would tax it back out of the economy Ooh. and that's always a funny one to me because what do they think the money does after they tax it back out of the economy. They put that plus 50% back into the economy afterwards. Right. It doesn't get taxed out. They just find a new way to spin that again, and it goes back in. Yeah, and <laughs> what, what you just said is important, so I, I want to um, underline it. So the, the MMT, modern monetary theory argument here is, look, we print more money, and if it does cause inflation because there's more money in the system versus goods and services, we can alleviate that by raising tax rates and siphon that money back out of the system so we don't get inflation. And that sounds really good until you think it through. Two things are happening here. One is the assumption that when we raise the tax rates to pull that money out of the system, that Congress doesn't turn around and respend it. That's the first thing. The second thing is, what's the second thing? Good Lord, see what you've done? What is mm. It's an important second thing. Man, if James oh, were here, he would have known he, the second thing. If he was thing. here, he'd know. Oh, here's the second thing. Here's the second thing. What you have done in the end, you might end up with the same GDP after is before, but what constitutes that GDP has changed. So by raising the tax rates and siphoning the money out of the system, you have, in effect, taken a chunk of GDP that was determined by consumers, by your choices, by my choices, and we decide we want more videos, or we want more clothing, or we want more cars, or whatever it is, and the market produces that. We take those decisions out of our hands, we put them into the hands of bureaucrats and politicians. And so now all of a sudden, you don't have more houses, you have more border walls, and you don't have more avocados, you more have more hand grenades. 
you might have the same GDP, but what constitutes that GDP is going to be less of things that we want and more of things that politicians and bureaucrats want. Something happened today. Uh, Kroger announced that they were going to purchase Albertsons, the grocery store, yes. for $26 billion. And I wanted to get your thoughts on antitrust because that is immediately, immediately what a lot of politicians started talking about was using the antitrust laws to stop them from buying Albertsons. Yeah, and isn't, isn't that ironic? Because we, politicians love to talk about antitrust, you know, monopolies in the economic sphere. But if you look in the political sphere, the federal government is the ultimate monopoly, right? You can't get out from under it. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, put that aside, let's talk about Kroger monopolies for a moment. In the economic sphere, they're what I would call, quote unquote, good monopolies and bad monopolies. And the distinction is the answer to the question, how did you become a monopoly? Did you become a monopoly because your product is so good and your prices are so low that consumers don't want to shop anywhere else? If that's the case, go with God. That's wonderful. (laughs) What consumers themselves have said, this is the only thing we want. Now, if on the other hand, you became a monopoly because you co-opted the politicians and bureaucrats to pass certain legislation and and enact the the regulations in such a way as to keep out competition, yeah, that's a problem. Because it's not the consumers who chose, it's the politicians and bureaucrats who chose. And so here, um, I don't know the details of Kroger and, and Albertsons, but to the extent that the government is not a player here for good or ill, I would say this is fine. Let it go. And it's weird that it's called a monopoly, considering they're still considering like, it's not. Yeah, Publix, yeah. do they know what mono means? <laughs> right, <laughs> that's right. That's my question. Because they even were talking. Well, Kroger's the second biggest grocery chain. Albertsons is the fourth. When they combine, they'll be almost as big as Walmart's grocery chain. Meaning they'll still be the second biggest one, <laughs> and you'll still have other ones. But they're going to be a monopoly after that somehow. I don't understand how this works. And like you were saying, if you have a monopoly because you provide a better service, what is the benefit to forcing you to go somewhere else to to get things that are more expensive? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Let let me go down that path for a minute. Because imagine a hypothetical case. And you're absolutely right. None of these companies are are monopolies in the true sense of monopoly. But let's take a hypothetical case in which a company actually has become a monopoly. It's the only one. There are no competitors. And it has become so because it's provided such a good quality and such a low price that consumers don't want to buy anywhere else. Now, someone might say, yes, but this company, because it's a monopoly, has the ability to all of a sudden raise its prices because there's no one else to buy from. And I tell you, so long as customers have the ability to walk away, that company's not going to do that because the minute it does, entrepreneurs coast to coast are going to find alternatives. They're going to found companies to compete with this one company and offer lower prices. Now you say, but there are no entrepreneurs out there doing that. This is the only company. I say, yes, there are no entrepreneurs doing that because the price is so low. Raise that price and they'll come out of the woodwork tomorrow. What's That's important. exactly what happened with fracking <laughs> in the oil yeah. industry. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Once the oil price got so high, yeah. it became beneficial Mm-hmm. to do the harder oil extraction called fracking and those popped up all over the place. I knew I knew people in uh, north north and south Dakota who made millions millions back in uh well 2007 2008 when oil hit 140 dollars yeah, right. a barrel they because they they were owned land and the mineral rights that these oil companies were buying up for millions of dollars 
uh, during the fracking boom back then. And so it's the same type of thing. Like once the price reaches a certain level where it becomes economically viable, where the incentive for the entrepreneur to go into that industry, which is why the profit motive is not a bad thing, that's going to bring about competition and then force people to lower their prices again. Yeah, and, and I think a good way to sum up that discussion is to say, look, provided the government is not involved protecting the company, even a monopoly faces competition because it competes not only with the companies that might exist that, that exist now, but with the companies that might exist if it alters its current behavior. Mm-hmm. They also compete with alternatives to whatever their product right, is. Right, yeah. You know, yeah. aluminum and, I don't know, plastic or whatever it may be, whatever the alternative yep. might be. And that's one thing that people don't take into account either. A really important part of this is that if they decide they're going to raise their prices, and that is the point where someone would come in and they would say, I can do this, you have to have a system that allows for that person to come in and say, okay, I'm going to come in and sell. Right. Like you were saying, the government doesn't need to be protecting that business. That's where regulations and, become uh, very detrimental. Yeah, and I can give you a good example of that. There's a law on the books. I don't know how long it's been on the books. If I would guess, I would say decades, that prohibits car manufacturers from selling directly to consumers. Mm-hmm. It's kind of strange if you think about it. You know, nobody ever buys. You want to buy a Ford. Nobody buys from Ford. You go to a dealership. Yeah, but it turns out by law you have to do that. Now, along comes Elon Musk with the Tesla, and Musk did not have a, a um, system of dealerships, so he had no way to sell the Tesla, because this law was standing in the way, saying, no, Tesla, you can't sell directly to customers. So what does he do? He goes to Congress. Does he ask for the regulation to be overturned? No. He asks for an exception to be made. That is... He knew that so long as this regulation remains, if he could be called an exception to that regulation, the regulation, once he's in, will protect him from competitors. That's right. <laughs> and isn't it always strange how you see these massive corporations go before Congress and argue for regulations? Right, like yes, they, yeah. yes. Please regulate my business. <laughs> well, I, I'll give you another example there. Um, some years ago, probably 10, 15 years ago now, Walmart was in the news for lobbying the federal government for an increase in minimum wage. That's really strange. Why would Walmart lobby for an increase in minimum wage? If Walmart wanted to pay its workers more, it could just pay its workers more. And you dig into the numbers and you realize that Walmart was already paying more than the minimum wage. If it could convince the federal government to raise the minimum wage, it would put Walmart's competitors, who are paying the lower minimum wage, out of work. Mm-hmm. It was using the regulation to protect itself from com- competition. It was interesting. Amazon did the same thing after they raised their wage to 15. They right. started pushing to raise the minimum wage up to 15. Yep. Yep. And uh, it's it's like all of these policies that you see pushed by the left a lot. It they're almost helpful to a lot of big established businesses that all that already exist. They're not so helpful to people who want to create new yeah. things. Yeah, they are really helpful, and unfortunately, the voters. And I'm going to tread softly here, but the voters, on average, tend to act like children when it comes to this. And and I I kind of mean that literally. You've got a child, a five-year-old, and the five-year-old wants chocolate. And the five-year-old doesn't shouldn't be having chocolate; should be having vegetables and you know things with vitamins and so forth. And if if your position as parent depends on the child's vote, 
what are you going to give the child? You're going to give the child chocolate <laughs> yeah. because otherwise you get voted out, right? Yes. And that's kind of how it works with voters and politicians. And we're or they'll scream and cry. They'll scream and cry. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and the fact of the matter is, and I, I don't want, I don't mean to denigrate the voters here and say they're stupid or they're childish or whatever, but rather to say, look, we all have concerns in life, and top amongst them are things like paying the mortgage, raising the children, getting the car fixed. Somewhere around number fifty on that list is be an engaged voter. I don't have the time and the energy to be an engaged voter. Not because I'm stupid, not because I'm, I don't care, but because I've got these other real world problems I've got to deal with. And so when a politician comes along and says, hey, elect me and I'm going to fix this problem by raising the minimum wage, I think, oh yeah, that sounds good. And I vote for him because yeah. I haven't had the time, not that I couldn't understand it, I just don't have the time to think this through properly. Well, they're delegating that critical thinking process. That's a they, good point, yes. They think that those folks have their best interests in mind. The only way to fix that in mind, because I was trying to work through it, I was thinking about, well, we should become more informed bo- voters, obviously, mm-hmm. and just make better choices. But you can't expect everyone to know how to run the entire world's economy or anything like that. Right. Like, you can't delegate that. That's why the government isn't supposed to be doing those things. So really the only way to solve that problem is that you get the government out of the business of all, almost all of the things that they're doing. And then it's not so important. Uh, you know, you're not going to vote AOC and she's going to m- vote on something that's going to change the whole world's economy because she's having a bad day or something. Yeah. yeah or I, Trump for that matter. Yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah, and yeah. you're right. And you know, the, the take home here is, well, politicians don't know what the right answers are. And let me say something in support of politicians here. Yes, the politicians don't know what the right answers are. And those of us in the private sector, we don't know either. <laughs> We're not any smarter than they are. But there's a big difference. In the private sector, we have hundreds of millions of people trying different things. We have hundreds of millions of experiments. With the federal government, you have one. And so there's nothing to look at to say, well, this thing worked better than that thing because there's only one thing. But in markets where you have many entrepreneurs competing against each other, we can see lots of different things. And we, the consumers, say, oh, yeah, clearly that one's better than that one. Do we get perfect answers? No. But we do get a process that causes the better answers to rise to the top. Especially with reviews nowadays. You can leave reviews on the re- all kinds of yeah. stuff. Right, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, the fact yeah. that Amazon invented reviews, basically. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. And you have whole massive companies built off of that. Yelp, right? I mean... Well, that literally that, is a review company. I just talked about that on the show the other day because I saw a guy getting arrested in Florida because he didn't have a license to roof. We're in Florida right now. I just realized that. Sorry, I'll say that quieter, I guess. Wait, he but didn't have a license here in Florida right after that hurricane? Right after the they're hurricane. They're arresting a roofer. Yes. Good God. Because he didn't have a license. And that's ridiculous to me. I, uh, I ran a company with a friend, and we remodeled over 200 houses. And I will say we never had a license to do anything. What people really cared about was that we were trustworthy and we did really good work. Right. And we would come back anytime they called us and keep doing things for them. It seems like people should care more about whether or not someone's doing good work uh, versus whether or not they paid a fee to the state. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, you know, look at our own behavior. If you're going to go get a haircut in a new place, what do you do? You don't ask who has a barber's license. You ask your friends and family, hey, who's a good, you know, barber, mm-hmm. hairdresser? And you go to that person. You go by, based on what And it's about. not like the people who have licenses don't make mistakes. Right, yeah. yeah. Right? Like you can still yeah. have problems in, in your house, even though you didn't get somebody who was licensed. You can still get a terrible haircut which yep. happened to me and my son not that long ago, I got to tell you. 
Yeah. yeah. I was going to mention that. And yeah. there, Thanks. There's a, <laughs> there's a comeback to that, which is, okay, but haircuts are simple things compared to roofing. So maybe we do need some licensing and roofing, to which I respond, well, hang on, because the market can handle that. What you do, you as the consumer, you say, okay, Mr. Roofer, you want to come and, and do my roof? Show me your insurance certificate. That is, that some insurance company has blessed you as a roofer and said, verily, if this guy's work doesn't come up to par, we will compensate you for that. And what's going to happen is the insurance companies have a profit incentive to only insure the good roofers. And now all of a sudden you've got the same kind of licensing going on, only it's not a license, it's insurance, and its existence is determined by the profitability of the insurance company. That is, the insurance company makes good choices in insuring this guy and not that guy. And simultaneously protecting the consumer in case something goes wrong. Yeah, and simultaneously. <laughs> exactly. And that's that another something? point. Because with the regulation, okay, so I get a government-blessed roofer who comes and does, and he does a bad job. The regulation, the licensing doesn't protect me. It's not going to come and replace my roof. That's on me. But an insurance company would. But an insurance company would, that's, exactly. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay, I know Pay that we... deductible. Okay. I, mean, I know that we got to wrap up, so I was going to have you just tell everyone a little bit about words and numbers. It, it is, I've told everyone before, I listen to it every Wednesday when it comes out. God bless you. And so great. just uh, tell everyone about what uh, Well, that's how we know James all this stuff. Do. Yeah, that's how. (laughs) Words and Numbers is a podcast I co-host with um, James Harrigan, who's a political scientist. I'm, of course, an economist. And each week we look at what's going on in the world through the eyes of a political scientist and economist. We just talk about what's going on. And uh, we've just hit our one millionth download back in January. So congratulations, listening out there. That's awesome. And we take it decidedly. It's I I don't want to say non-political. Because it is political in the sense that, that the Greeks meant, the polis, the, the people, but it's nonpartisan. So we will happily take to task the Democrats, we will happily take to task the Republicans and the Libertarians, whoever it is. We're, we're, looking, for, to, we're looking to see where the data lead us. Where does data, where does le- reason lead us? And sometimes it's led us to things that we didn't like. But then we just say, look, you know, I thought X, but it turns out the data says not X, and I'm not happy about it, but that's the way it is. And so that's what we attempt to do. And the goal here, ultimately, is to get people on the two sides talking again, because the people on the left have half the truth. The people on the right have half the truth. The problem is neither side knows what portion of what they think is the truth actually is the truth. And until they get together, we're not going to move forward as a society. I've got to bring up one thing, and we'll just have a, a few minutes on it. But we've been talking this whole time. We've been agreeing on pretty much everything. We just, I agree, I agree. Let me ask you, what do we owe each other? Yeah, what do we owe each other? Boy, this always brings the hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> I, cl- I claim, and I can speak for James here as well, he claims also that we owe each other something as members of a shared society. When I'm born into this society, at the very least, I'll just give you one example. I have the gift of language. That is, there's this English language that we have, and I learn it and I can communicate with others. And in communicating with others, all sorts of things happen. In fact, every single thing that happens in the economy happens only because we can communicate. And who did I pay? What royalties did I pay for that? Nobody, this is a gift from society to me. At the very least, I owe something for that. And James will go further and say, well, look, if you want property rights, you need someone to 
write down what are those property rights. That's a legislature. You need somebody to enforce them. That's an executive branch. You need somebody to judge disputes about them. That's a judicial branch. That If you want property rights, you need government, and that costs something. So do we owe each other something? Yes, I think we do. In fact, I th- I'll go further than that. I think you cannot make a reasonable explanation that we don't owe each other something. However, that's something. While I don't know what it is, I can tell you it's not 0%, nor is it 100%. And that's the extent of what I can say. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I can see that. We could have spent the entire episode I on can this. See I, that. I, I'm a little upset that I just thought about it right now, honestly. I can see that morally, <laughs> like, you know, in a moral sense. It's like, I um, agree that yes. we owe each other something. However, I'm more of the Ayn Rand point of view that taxation should be voluntary. And so I agree, and I do think that we should pay in. And I think that the voluntary system, when she said this, I've said this a billion times in the podcast, when she said this on Donahue, everyone laughed at her because everyone knows that no one would voluntarily pay for the things that the government does. And that, that means a lot because what are they saying? They're saying that people don't actually, they know the government wastes a ton of money. They know that they don't actually value everything that the government does all the time. And so that's the way we think about it. When you talk about a charity, yeah. people wouldn't laugh. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think about, you know, think about a church and the, the members of the church voluntarily pay to keep the church. Going. I absolutely think you have a moral obligation to your fellow citizens, 100%. Yeah. Now, I, especially when it comes to community, because what are we without community? Right. right? I mean, we're not meant to be alone. You put somebody alone, I'll show you an insane person. Yeah, now I think <laughs> you know. I think you've raised a secondary question that's also important, and that is if we do indeed owe each other something, and let's say for the sake of argument we've agreed on what that is, how do we exact it? It doesn't necessarily mean you need a government. I mean, if everybody's paying what we owe each other voluntarily, there's no need for government. And I think, and that's, that's my, look, my love here is anarchy. I love the idea of anarchy, and I think... A thousand years from now, that's where humanity will be. But we're not there yet. Anarchy is a game for adults. People, <laughs> people who, who have self-control, people who understand their obligations to others and will take steps to fulfill those obligations. We will get there. And for evidence, I point to where we have come over the past thousand years. We'll get mm, there, yeah, but we aren't right. there now. And until we get there, government is the second best. There we so go. We'll I think all, we're going to... Oh. Well, I'll just end it here. Okay. We'll all end up on Mars with Musk and anarchy. That's fine. Sure. <laughs> That's I'll do that. <laughs> I'm going. Because I think he just... Didn't he say something? Uh, didn't he... I think he wrote a tweet, something along the lines of there will be no uh, earthly laws on Mars. Like, we're not going to recognize... <laughs> Earth's laws. That's going to be Mars. an interesting question when they yeah. do so. start to colonize Mars. When we start to uh, yeah. create a it's right. gonna, government there, it's you know, be true libertarian anarchy. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Okay, we got to go, <laughs> Professor Davies. Thank you so much once again. We really appreciate it. Words and numbers. Everyone's got to go find that. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Every Wednesday there is a new episode. I think every Wednesday. Not every Wednesday. Okay. Every Wednesday there is a new episode. And uh, hey, hope hope to have you back on again sometime. Thank you. Always a pleasure to talk to you.